0: you're listening to the 10 podcast the discovery and design channel in health Tune in with me, your host Matt Patterson, to learn about insights from the world of healthcare today. Good morning and welcome back to the podcast. It's brilliant to be able to invite Dr. Shikta Das and Dr. David Neesham onto the podcast this morning, epidemiologists and specialists in modelling, and you're going to find out more in a minute about what that exactly means. Guys, please do tell us a little bit more about yourselves, perhaps tell us what an epidemiologist does and what models are, uh, and give us a bit of a background to yourselves and your work. Shikta.
1: Sure, Uh, thank you Matt for inviting me, it's a pleasure to be talking about this. Uh, As you must have guessed, I'm an epidemiologist, so I did my PhD from Imperial in Epidemiology and Biostatistics. And I wanted to uh, very keenly want to tell people what an epidemiologist does. So epidemiology is the study of how often disease occur in different groups and why. And as epidemiologists, our work is to evaluate strategies to improve illness and also to work on management of those who are with disease. I think one of the key features is for us to find and measure the population at risk or the target population. And one of the most important works we do is the mathematical modelling. It's a very powerful tool, and it can be helpful in predicting results, or also evaluating the potential capacity of certain intervention. but I must add that it has its own limitations as well in transforming complex situations such as COVID-19.
0: And in layman's terms, could you describe what those limitations are?
1: It could be a lot of things. Uh, the first limitation is the data itself. We have to be very reliant on what we get. And possibly not the best move forward is if we don't have a reliable data.
0: And David, welcome. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about yourself and models? And what, what, are, what are these models we're hearing a lot about?
2: Hi there. Thank you very much as well, Matt, for inviting us to talk today.
0: You're welcome.
2: So I, I'm also an epidemiologist. I was trained at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and also Imperial College, uh, the latter where I was also formerly a senior lecturer in epidemiology. So thinking about our subject material today as a starting point, um, perhaps it would be uh, good to state the context, the overall context for our discussion.
0: So tell me, tell me what it means in relation to what the World Organ- Health Organization has done in relation to this pandemic in front of us.
2: So as you, as you know, the World Health Organization has assigned COVID-19 to pandemic status on March 11th this year. It's actually not long ago, but it seems like a long time ago now. So by labelling COVID-19 a pandemic, WHO is placing it in a totally different category Um, than several recent deadly outbreaks, including the recent Ebola outbreak in the Democratic Republic of Congo and the Zika virus outbreak in 2016, and even the 2014 Ebola outbreak in West Africa. All three of those outbreaks were deemed to be international emergencies, but not pandemics. The last pandemic was the H1N1 influenza virus that killed at least 18,000 people in more than 214 countries and territories in 2009. However, as of today on my tracker, there have been uh, 24,863 deaths due to COVID-19. And relatively speaking, we're only at the early stages of this pandemic. So today, we thought it would be useful to think about how such pandemics are monitored using modelling techniques, especially given the impact of current analytic modelling work in the UK. And in the process, we will raise several important questions and issues. So to start with, what is what is a model why are they useful and how can they be used an infectious disease model is a tool that can be used to study the mechanisms by which diseases spread to predict the future course of an outbreak and or to evaluate strategies to control an epidemic or pandemic during the last decade or so there has been a huge increase in the level of interest in mathematical models for transmission of infectious diseases models were once more or less exclusively the preserver theorists within the mathematical and the statistical community. They are now of interest to a much broader range of scientists, and notably also to national and international level policymakers who wish to control or contain existing and future outbreaks. Although it's not possible to be definitive, two factors seem likely to have contributed to this increased interest in models disease transmission. Firstly, the epidemic modelling community has itself become far more engaged with addressing issues of direct interest to public health. Recent examples include dealing with control measures for the Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, SARS, and estimating key epidemiological quantities of epidemics, for example, the reproduction number for influenza H1N1. And as we have started to witness here in the UK, The outputs from modeling efforts are now being used center stage as politically acceptable contributions to the decision-making process and also to guide policy. Second factor is the advent of substantially greater and accessible computational power together with greater accessibility to reliable data inputs needed in such models. This power has been utilized in two main ways. Firstly, it's now possible to simulate large and complex models for instance, describing the individual level behaviour of millions of individuals on a daily basis, which then can be used to assess the effectiveness of possible intervention measures, measures, such as to understand and predict the spread, and also potentially methods for controlling pandemics.
0: And Shikta, would you add anything to that?
1: David has pretty much covered most of the points that I would have liked to mention as well. I think just to reiterate and to summarize uh, models are very essential part of understanding and we have seen that with the outbreak of COVID-19. We as epidemiologists use models to understand what is happening and that's what we did in Wuhan uh, and when the first when the outbreak first started and also to understand some of the key features of the virus. Uh, But as you know as a general rule of thumb in epidemiological model I think the way we start epidemiological modeling is usually based on the purpose of the study, how well the disease is understood, and what kind of amount and quality of data we get. So we start from a baseline model, which is the worst case scenario, as you can see in our case, and we build the model from there by changing one parameter each time to see which model fits best to our data. In case of a pandemic, it's an ever-changing scenario. And hence, we keep changing and updating our model That's really
0: quiet. So I believe there's this really influential paper by Professor Ferguson at Imperial that people will probably have heard of nowadays that made uh, some influential change in relation to the government strategy. Can you tell us a little bit more about this Ferguson paper, Ferguson model and process, so that our audience can understand some of the elements that underpin it?
2: Yes, thank you, Matt. So the publication you're referring to is is called the impact of non-pharmaceutical interventions, (NPIs) to reduce COVID-19 mortality and healthcare demand was published on the 16th of March this year. And the lead author is Professor Neil Ferguson. And he's really part of a larger COVID-19 response team of scientists and doctors findings are published in the ninth report from the world health organization collaborating center for infectious disease modeling within the mrc center for global infectious disease analysis at imperial college and all of the publications uh, related to covid19 are freely accessible on the internet it's worth saying that neil's paper is part of a larger portfolio of analyses Um, his report number nine it's the ninth report but there are a whole sequence of reports. So report 12 was issued yesterday and was on the, the news this morning on the global impact of COVID-19 and strategies for containment. Also, you'll find studies there on estimation of COVID-19 prevalence in Wuhan and phylogenetic analysis of COVID-19 to, to look at the genetic makeup of COVID, COVID-19. So there's a lot of interesting material there performed at this WHO collaborating centre. I think that's a good sign for us. Uh, It means that work has been done collectively from different perspectives. Uh, It's been done iteratively and it's generating a body of work that is coherent, provides a framework for continued checking and validation. So going on into Neil's paper. So in the current uh, absence of a COVID-19 vaccine, um, they assess the potential role of a number of public health measures, so-called non-pharmaceutical interventions, MPIs, and these are aimed at reducing contact rates in the population and thereby, thereby reducing the transmission of the virus. The study has a very practical dimension in that it addresses the impacts of these different model scenarios in relation to the emergency surge capacity in the UK healthcare system, in particularly the extent to which general ward and ICU bed surgery limits may be exceeded under different model assumptions. What the study is not is an economic or ethical analysis of the implications of different strategies Though the authors noted in the introduction that, quote, there is no easy policy decision to be made. The model is also not able to catch all aspects of real life interactions. And although a lot of excellent rapid research has been done on COVID-19, there are still areas of the disease we do not fully understand. Also, it's worth noting that the software used in the study had already been developed and validated in previous work on pandemic influenza, previously published separately in high-impact journals, Nature and the Proceedings of the National Ac- Academy of Sciences, Sciences of the United States of America, PNAS.
0: Victor, what would you what would you say in relation to this? In relation to the development of model and the use of these models?
1: Of course, Matt. So. Um, yes, absolutely, as David mentioned, and as I was saying earlier, uh, I think the epidemiological model could be really simple mathematical models as well as complex models or maybe decision support systems. They pretty much depend on the purpose of the study. And with the, this new generation of epidemiological model, it is very helpful for us to understand how the study is, the disease worked. And, in uh, you know, the modeling at the moment has been pretty much, as David mentioned about Neil's paper as well, has been done more in the context of what the physical scenario is, the economic, the technological, health, as well as political infrastructure is. So we have already started with and are modeling as much as possible to have contained the scenarios in mind. But we have to note that you know, to have an effective intervention, the model has to be fit for purpose and it should be appropriately verified and validated. And uh, as David mentioned above, you know, that it has has to be constantly keep updated, ensuring that we have an adequate representation of the situation and that the model is accurate and precise and intended for the purpose. So we should always keep in mind that we have we'll have to keep updating our model with the current data inputs we are mm-hmm. receiving and that we should not just look at the model in isolation but in context of everything
0: else. And there's been a lot of talk about some very scientific terms that people have picked up in the media um, but they may not be that uh, sure of what they mean and and what impact they have. Things like the reproduction number, so many of you may have heard and seen that, what does the reproduction
2: number mean to to our audience? Yes Matt, that's a very good question and it does relate particularly to these Types of studies and uh, modeling studies done, and, and certainly for the studies study. So, just to pick up on that, a few simple terms used in the models. So we have the pr- reproduction number R, uh, which is the average number people each infected person generates. Uh, there's also the incubation period, which is the time from initial infection to the point where symptoms of the disease become evident. And you can think of that as a latent asymptomatic stage is particularly important in COVID-19. And then thirdly, the doubling time, the amount of time it takes for the case number of infections to double in size. Now, for the reproduction number early in epidemics, it's typically between two and three people infected per case on average. The variation in secondary case infection can be wide from low-infectors to so-called super-spreaders. And in Neil's paper, they assume a baseline reproduction number of about 2.4, and they also examine values between 2 and 2.6. It might be added that these are quite conservative estimates, but they were based on the early data from the epidemic in Wuhan. Now, R contains two main component components or elements. Firstly, how intrinsically contagious the infection is, And secondly, the number of potential contacts that could be infected through the exposure to an infected case. So the aim is to reduce R by impacting either of these two components. So for example, for the non-pharmaceutical interventions, the NPIs, the idea is that such um, measures, uh, for example, social distancing uh, can be implemented in the model and uh, the model that. Neil uses is called a suppression model. And the idea of that social distancing is aimed at reducing the second components of R, which is the, to lower the number of potential contacts, in, infections, infection contacts for transmission of the disease between infected and susceptibles. So that's, that's the, the key thing there that we're trying to reduce um, R by, by impacting the transmission number.
0: So this is having some very practical effects on all of us in society in terms of what the government and what people are expected to do in terms of everyday behaviours, um, in terms of some of the public information instructions going out there. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit more about uh, some of these factors in terms of the behaviours and where that where that originates from.
1: Uh, okay, so thank you, Matt. I'll take this question. And I think as an epidemiologist, the first steps we take is to find the data so when who says test test that's they actually mean that we need the data and find an appropriate intervention so find a drug which works for this particular disease find a vaccine and as we know that this is a very novel virus we don't know how its uh, structure is now we know in terms of genetic data but to develop some intervention drug it takes time so by doing the social distancing, what we are trying to do is buy more time for the medical response, and hence the whole term called flattening the curve comes in. What we are trying to do is by physical, isolate people with disease and uh, general public and the vulnerable group, we are trying to cut off the chains of transmission and I think one of the very good um, examples as an epidemiologist, which I read recently has been, uh, which I found quite interesting was, uh, I think University of Pennsylvania has uh, recently done an analysis and they estimate that by just by social distancing, we can reduce the infection rate by 95%. Uh, and if you look at numbers, that, that's like 900,000 people, Americans, um, you know, despite social distancing will still need intensive care so you can see that even though we covered the 95 percent there's a huge numbers which will still go with intensive care
0: and that's the, i mean they're they're massive numbers and it seems like social distancing and the impact of it is critically important david what would you add here
2: yes it's it's, it's certainly um so, uh, so certainly social distancing is a really key component of the, the models that the um, the models that Neil has been using and they showed a really impact of, of social distancing on a large scale. Another interesting point um, in terms of the model is a quite conservative approach with regards to the reproduction and transmissibility. And in terms of updates, uh, updated information, we've witnessed certainly doubling times of below five days in the UK. In the, modeling, uh, the model that Neil uses has a, a five-day doubling time. And Neil, in recent communication, has intimated that their latest estimates suggest that the virus is slightly more transmissible than previously thought, uh, though the impact on the lethality estimates in the model are not affected by these updated data.
1: I think, Matt, I would like to add, you know, as David said, and and we both agree to this, that it's so important to update the model as we go along. It is such a novel virus, novel disease. We don't know what the details of the transmission is yet. We are still looking at data collected from different countries. I think we have to emphasize here that the model will keep updating itself and we will see new results. we are expecting a peak in two weeks' time. Again, that is also something we'll keep looking at, we'll keep updating. So it's going to be quite a complex modeling from an
0: epidemiological point of view. So, David, tell us a bit about how this may simulate certain scenarios.
2: So, going into how the model works a little bit. So, the models essentially simulate a virtual country together with virtual cities, schools, hospitals, all based on official validated statistics in the UK. As the model runs, it simulates all of the interactions on how an infection can progress in a longitudinal timeframe in terms of days, months, and and even longer term. So to assess the impact of non-pharmaceutical interventions, NPIs, they first of all Simulated an imaginary first worst-case scenario in which there were no MPIs, no interventions, and also no spontaneous changes in individual behavior. And I think that goes back to Shikta's points that she made earlier. Shikta, do you want to just pick up on that?
1: Yes, absolutely, David. So um, I think as an epidemiologist, what we generally try to do is develop a baseline model. Uh, And this baseline model, as David explained, would have pretty much uh, made up simulated numbers uh, from a virtual country and we would assume that this is the worst case scenario which Neil has presented and from that we start rebuilding the model looking at the data which we get. So uh, in Neil's paper he has used UK and US as examples and he has provided different scenarios which would be applied to this model. Too. And uh, this is what we do in terms of looking at any other disease or any other uh, viral infection is to develop models. And uh, I would be very interested to know what David thinks about, you know, how, how this particular model, Niels' model, is suited at the moment with this data.
2: Yeah, so the idea there is that you have a base base case model and then you have a spectrum of other models that you, you use to, to see the impact of changing different assumptions and uh, different data inputs. So it, it's, it's a very normal sort of uh, way of conducting uh, modeling uh, analyses. Uh, but from from the point of view of someone who doesn't understand modeling, it might look strange at first hand. And I think some of the confusion in the, the media has been surrounded a little bit by by this rationale of this type of study works and how it's set up. So essentially, um, in Neil's paper, the model simulated, first of all, so they started off with this base case scenario in which there, there was no NPIs uh, or interventions, no spontaneous changes in, in individual behavior. And with that model, uh, they effectively simulated the impacts of COVID-19 rampaging through throughout the nation. And in that scenario, they had a reproduction number of 2.4, and uh, they found about 80% of the UK population would be infected through the course of the epidemic. And uh, it will result in over half a million deaths over a period of three to four months, not accounting for additional knock-on negative effects to the health system, being overwhelmed. So uh, also, incidentally, that same model predicted excess deaths in the US of over two million deaths uh, over a similar, similar period. Uh, obviously, th- those types of results show that no country should would even contemplate and um, that type of uh, approach. So, so, moving on from the the base case scenario, they they worked worked onto next uh, scenarios, um, so that the next worst case scenarios were was, were based on what they call the mitigation model. It has been termed in the media the herd immunity model, incorrectly in by some media outlets. So, in these mitigation models. Um, the epidemic was largely transmitted through society with very limited interventions, for example, case isolation, uh, quarantine for people greater than 70 years of age. However, in the the modelling they conducted, it was clear for all of the mitigation model scenarios that such limited interventions would in fact also result in overwhelming the healthcare systems. I think the, the best case optimal inverted commas, mitigation scenario would still result in an eightfold higher peak demand on critical care beds, uh, NHS care beds, over and above the available surge capacity in the UK. In fact, similar results were found in the US. So those models really didn't perform well, um, and uh, so they moved on to other modeling strategies, and that's where uh, they devised uh, suppression models, and these were used uh, next and the difference between uh, these suppression models and the previous mitigation models is that the suppression models are aimed at intensive wide-scale control and containment measures out of these one of the most important factors is in the suppression model is social distancing through the population which we mentioned earlier that factor together with case isolation household quarantine and school and university closures were predicted to have the largest impact over a period of five months. Suppression model was also the best model in comparison to the mitigation model when different reproduction numbers and levels of disease severity, for example, uh, the proportion of cases requiring ICU admission with the implementation of these intensive activities in the suppression model, the intensive care unit capacity is still put under intense strain, but able to stand up to the influx of intensive care cases. And we 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 know that in the current situation, that um, every care beds uh, seen the Excel Centre uh, facility being built or being set up in London, and obviously the model helped to point point the need for expansion of capacity just uh, bed capacity, but also as we, we know that now a mechanical ventilator, the, the, the need for more mechanical ventilators as well. So, yeah. so my, most interestingly, is the way a suppression model is now being used as a, as a guidance for ongoing policy decisions. So for example, the cumul- cumulative total of 200 ICU cases per week was seen to be a threshold the latest point at which policies could be triggered uh, to attempt to keep peak ICU demand below the UK surge limits uh, with a reproduction number of 2.6 in Neil's paper. And this threshold of 200 ICU cases per week was reached on the 19th of March, uh, according to the Intensive Care National Audit and Research Centre. And it was interesting to see that this coincided with the major evening TV broadcast from the Prime Minister on the need to impl- implement much more intensive social t- distancing measures. So I think it's an intriguing, uh, if, if not sobering way, that the model is uh, being used, uh, continue to be used, because the model needs to be updated as, as we move forwards.
0: So in relation to this data, I mean, I'm seeing people saying that this is not just a one-off spike. Might we have multiple spikes and surges, uh, as has been suggested is possible over a period of 12 months or 18 months?
1: Absolutely, Matt. Uh, As you know, this disease is progressing. We are in the midst of it. We don't have a lot of information. We do have a lot of information in terms of the genetic structure, in terms of uh, the cases, in terms of the death rate, Uh, but the model will be changing.
0: so, if we were summing up what this means to the public, what would you say, Shikta?
1: So Matt, that's a very good question. Basically, what I want to address here is actually three points about immunity, seasonality and what WHO has suggested the next step should be. I think uh, pretty much we have captured, you know, what's happening with the modelling, epidemiological models and uh, what we really need to think carefully about the immunity. and. Something which has already make uh, uh, almost word herd immunity. We have seen that, and and which has been almost taken aback by, in um, back by the government. Um, that immune, we don't know what the immunity if people develop immunity. There's a lot of work uh, that's already been done, uh, been getting done by communities, scientific communities from China, France, Germany. So in in few days we will kind of know what's happening with the immunity. I think the news here is that China is already doing some research with rhesus monkey, where they have, uh, um, you know, they incubated them with the virus. And uh, after having the symptoms, for one, that that gives us some positive notes. I think the second point a lot of uh, people are wondering is about the seasonality. Uh, I think the way we epidemiologists look at it is we look at other infectious diseases. And the truth is, SARS did not die of natural causes it was killed by extreme intense public health intervention by the countries where it was so i think we have to take these considerations and uh, we have to see how it goes uh, however i would like to um kind of address uh, or bring in a quote from dr mark lipswich harvard he has just published a paper about these myths and seasonality and he says that you know, we may expect model decline in contagiousness of SARS-CoV-2 uh, in warmer, wetter weather, and perhaps the closing of schools in temperate region of northern hemisphere. Uh, however, he also says that you know it might decline the slow transmission, but how big the dent is, we do not know. And lastly, I would like to say, WHO is working extremely hard to provide solutions. One of the solutions they have suggested is some antiviral medications for which a lot of scientific community has already started experimenting and checking and uh, running interventions in patients and see what positive news we get from there. And I'm sure David has a um, wonderful summary of
0: Thank you, Shutter. Yes, David, what, what what in summing up do you think, what does it mean to the public from your point of view?
2: So I think we're entering a, a critical phase of the pandemic so for the UK the peak of the pandemic from now will be in two to three weeks from now. be interesting if we had a conversation in two to three weeks to, to update on modelling and uh, various issues to do with the pandemic. Of course the NHS is a formidable and highly skilled and passionate workforce I believe that they can meet the challenges ahead. Our main concern for the UK and also one of the challenges that many countries around the world be facing is how we move from an initial intensive lockdown situation to something that will have uh, societal effects but will, also, uh, will allow the economy to restart, because there may be some uh, rebound COVID-19 outbreaks during this period of relaxation of measures. And we may need to have a, uh, an adapted strategy. Of course, mo- modelling can help to predict uh, out rebound outbreaks, particularly as data are. Uh, I guess we're, we're at the early stages of figuring out how to do that, developing s- such strategies. We certainly, need a, an adapted strategy. So, I think there are challenges ahead um, beyond the the peak of the pandemic, and certainly the issues to do with the relaxation of the the measures that we implementing at the
0: moment. And that's, in many ways, reassuring to hear there's a perspective and knowledge of things moving forward, and in many ways quite challenging, yes, because it sounds like this this will be with us for quite a while. If we had a magic wand from a statistician, from an epidemiologist's point of view, what would you wish for, with your skill sets, to help solve this pandemic, flatten the curve, do everything we can to minimise the impact?
2: Oh, I think... I think right now the issue to do is is handling the the peak of the pandemic, certainly the modelling uh, side is, is is being very helpful because I think issues such as ICU capacity, scale-up issues generally, those have been highlighted at least in proxy form through the model. So the, mo- the model has lo- been looking at principally at peak ICU beds, uh, total impact on mortality in proportion of time with social distancing in place. And so I guess that from the from a modelling point of view, that that work will continue. Right through the next uh, phase of the pandemic, and um, people like Neil and his team will be working tirelessly to update the model and to inform policymakers on how best to to handle the situation as it evolves. I think slightly longer term, as we as we go forwards. To dealing with the post intensive phase, I guess they'll need to be, the, the, the issues will be more about combining modeling with public health intervention. So, so those are the, the issues.
0: And Shikta, if we had a magic one for you, would you add anything to David's point of view then?
2: Wow, that's a good
1: question, Matt. Um, that's a good one. Um, I'm glad you mentioned epidemiology point of view, otherwise, I had a long list. Uh, I think um, very much similar thoughts to David. And I would say that, you know, if I had a magic wand, I would love to have good quality data in real time to develop better models and save lives. I think John Hopkins has provided us with uh, this real time data you know, that's been incredible. I, I wish to do the same in uh, UK, in, in my university as well. And I think what would be interesting uh, to know, to understand actually, if the efficacy of each intervention being deployed uh, based on the data we get or the application, if it is invaluable building up and understanding, you know, that helps in future. And I'd like to see which one worked best. In these scenarios so that we are prepared for the next time uh, i do hope there is no next time but we have to be prepared and um i think more philosophically i would say that you know i do wish that policy maker or the decision makers make more statistically informed decisions. you know it would be great if very early on we were involved in in, in these uh, decision making process because I really think that this particular pandemic has shown that epidemiology is not just a desktop analysis, it is very much frontline work. And I personally take a lot of pride in my area of work. And I also feel that as an epidemiologist, I want to burst myths around infectious diseases. Uh, There's a huge potential to act as a translator, to ensure that the general public understands the science behind diseases, and effect of planning
0: intervention. It sounds like in two to three weeks' time we're going to reach this certainly this intensive care demand peak. It'd be great if we could get you both to come on then and see what we've learned in the last two weeks. But before we wrap up today, um, if you're both up for that, that would be fabulous to have you back on the podcast
2: yeah. then. I'd, be a
0: I'd like to say Absolutely. where where should people where should people look to for for trusted advice at the moment?
2: Shall I, I go first? I, I mean, really. Uh, Obviously, you can find the information at the the WHO Collaborating Centre site at Imperial College. The the study that we've been talking about, Neil's study, is is the ninth report. Uh, that there, there are obviously a lot of other reports there that are very interesting and and informative. So that's the Imperial College website. Um, apart from that, uh, I recommend. WHO website for general questions on the pandemic, and also the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine website. Uh- There is a lot of very good information on the pandemic as well
1: absolutely and i would second david so i personally have been following drop hopkins uh, cdc who imperial college uh, university college london and my twitter is pretty much up to date any information i'm getting from my u.s colleagues i am retweeting it uh, so that we are really informed uh, about what's happening in other countries as well So, uh, yes, I think there's plenty of uh, information around, but I I personally trust uh, WHO and CDC to come
0: with most relevant information. And where can they find you on Twitter, if you're you're retweeting some of those things? Where where will people find you on Twitter?
1: It's pretty much my, uh, you know, at shiksan.gov is my Twitter handle, so feel free, connect with me, I'm more than happy to answer questions. I have been part of several uh, Facebook chats as well with people who want to, general public wanted to ask questions about their comorbidity, what is their comorbidity, whether it's been defined or not. And I've done that for a lot of people, so feel free.
0: That's great. Thank you very much, Shukta. I'd like to say thank you to both of you for giving us such deep, insightful thinking today on areas that a lot of the public probably won't consider or would like to know more about. Um, I've personally learned a huge amount uh, and I'm excited to speak to you in a couple of weeks time when we see where this thing is going. So uh, if I first off could say thank you today, but it's not goodbye, but so long uh, and speak to you both very soon. (laughs)
1: Thank you so much, much for having us.
0: So that was Dr. Shiktadas and David Neesham telling us about how epidemiology underpins the behaviours we're all being asked to abide by in society today. I look forward to them coming back on in a couple of weeks when we're at the peak uh, to see what's changed, how the models have been reviewed and what the future is looking like then. If you'd like to come on the podcast, please email me at hello at weare10.co.uk. Thank you for listening and following us on Spotify and on iTunes. Until we speak next time on the podcast, have a safe day uh, and stay, uh, stay well. Until next time. Thank you.